Questions are free. Uh, this is one of my favorite quotes from a friend of mine because it encourages curiosity. If we're afraid to ask questions, we don't learn. If we're afraid to ask questions, we don't grow. We talked this week with someone who's asked a lot of questions about identity's role in security compromise, and we discuss the findings from her latest research. Uh, then we branch out into other questions, such as what instrument would identity play in a formal band? Would it be a saxophone, a contrabassoon, maybe a viola or a tuba? We've got a fever for knowledge, and the only cure are more questions. And, of course, more cowbell. After all, questions are free, and we're asking a lot of them on this episode of Mistaken Identity. Today on Mistaken Identity, we're pleased to welcome Catherine Teitler. She is the VP of Research and Advisory at TagCyper, and she has a long history in the security industry. She spent several years with IANS doing security research and pulling together uh, such various large-scale security conferences as InfoSec World. Um, Catherine joins us today to talk about some identity-related security research that she recently completed as part of her current work at TAG Cyber. Catherine, thanks for joining us today on Mistaken Identity. Thanks for having me, Mike. Sure. Your recent uh, survey-based research uh, centered around, I think, the exploration of how the role of identity is impacting compromise. Um, why do a survey on identity now? A ton of reasons. So identity has become the so-called new perimeter. So years ago, as you probably know, networks had a perimeter and it was around an office environment, an on-premises office environment. That is not the way people work today. And especially we've seen in the past year that Perimeters are everywhere, and the only way to make some kind of access control reliable is to focus that in large part on identity. And identity, of course, doesn't just mean, hey, I'm Catherine, you're Mike, she's Joanne, he's Steve. It means what device you're on, what version you're on. It means what permissions you have. There are a lot of things rolled into identity and access management, but they're all really, really important to this idea of how we work, how we use our resources. So identity really, it's been over a number of years, but it hit us in the face in the last 12 months that identity in particular is such a critical component to cybersecurity. But you go back 10, 15, 20 years ago, identity and access were not managed by security teams at all. Not at all. It was under IT's realm and it was sort of off to the side and security knew about it. But over the years, we've realized that cybersecurity needs to encompass identity. And, and so this is a big area of interest for us at Tag Cyber. 
We have a lot of enterprise users asking about it. There are myriad vendor companies looking at different aspects of what is identity and what does identity mean. And so this was the perfect time to do a survey of practitioners, both IT and security practitioners, to see what are their programs? What are they doing with them? How are they using it? Is identity really actually a security problem? We know that. But, but what's the real scope of the problem? So that was the focus of the research. Sure, sure. No, I, I totally agree. I'm kind of biased. And what I find uh, biased because I work in the ident identity space, obviously. And uh, part of the fascinating thing to me is how those uh, different components of identity are shifting over time culturally. Um, look at, you know, working from home so much, it meant that devices were a lot more important in that equation. So doing a survey on identity makes total sense to me. That was a great explanation. Thank you. Um, so tell me about kind of the process. Uh, what kind of sample set did you have? How did you go about it when you did the survey? So we, we have a partner at TAG that we use to, to sample our respondents. And they're all from IT and cybersecurity. Um, about 40% of respondents were more traditional IT managers and directors, 29% were security managers and directors specifically. And we also had some incident responders respond to this, security analysts and engineers as well. I think we had one SOC operator, tiny, tiny little sample size there, but all in all, we got 262 complete responses uh, across companies of all sizes, big and small, in mostly the US. Okay. Were there any verticals that, were, that stood out or is it more just general swath of companies? Well, I think one of the things that's important is as this concept of zero trust comes into play, people are realizing that you cannot do zero trust without identity and you cannot have identity just all over the place. And so, you know, you've got these, uh, like I said, financial services, government, those are two industries. They've got very important information. They're highly, highly regulated and they need a way to manage it. And moving towards zero trust, you have to look at identity-based, contextually-based, and also dynamic policies that go from on-premises to cloud, to multi-cloud, to container. You know, if you're changing locations, we're, we've sort of been at home for the last year, but we're moving towards this hybrid work environment. And after the pandemic, I guarantee you more companies are going to have more flexibility in how and when and where their employees work. So if I'm sitting at home today and I'm working from home, you've got one quote set of identity, you've got parameters around that. But if I decide to go to my local coffee shop and work there, once again, I'm still, I'm still me, I'm still Catherine Tyler, but I'm in a different location. What does that mean? What kind of connection am I on? What are the security risks inherent in that? And so you need to have all of these things combined to understand your risk. And so a lot of these more highly regulated industries or industries with more sensitive data, like financial services, like healthcare, like government, et cetera, they're thinking about it more because they need better ways of identifying those identities. What's fascinating to me too is there's this duality. Now, when we talk about zero trust, which has become much more popular the first, last you know few years, it's a little bit ironic yep. because 
Zero trust is what we always claim to or should have claimed to been doing, not just having one wall of perimeter and letting everyone in, but making rational decisions in context at the, you know, kind of defense in layers. Now, practically that it's come into fad and fallen out of fashion somewhat um, in practical use. But what's interesting to me is, especially with some of these financial industries, it's not just reactive, but they're also being proactive. They're saying, if we're depending everything on identity, well, now let's let's examine know your customer and let's let's open up markets for people that may not have the same access to resources or broadband and, and things like mobile devices are leveling that playing field. And actually innovation is kicking in in some of these highly, highly regulated industries, which is fascinating to watch. Um, but back to the survey. We could talk about this all day. Uh, this is fascinating. We could go on. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, so <laughs> some of the results uh, seemed... Uh, to be confirmation of, of what, you know, we've seen in surveys. And there've been lots of uh, breach reports, like, you know, the Verizon data breach report and things. And so seeing things like 100% of people reporting compromise is kind of an echo. It's a little bit shocking, but it's also an echo of the, you know, the old mantra from a couple of years ago, assume breach, and then, you know, uh, deal with it. Well, yes and no, though, Mike. So assume breach, yep, get it. We probably expected when we did this to get somewhere in the low to mid 90s of companies saying, yes, we've experienced an identity based compromise. So specifically, this research was on identity based compromise, not just compromise. And we can go into what that means if we want. There's always some small set of people who say, no, no, we haven't experienced a breach. And everybody looks at that and they go, "Okay, yeah, they just don't know it yet. But yes, all 262 completed responses said they've experienced a, smir- a security compromise related to identity. So it is a little shocking, A, that all people owned up to it, and B, that they understood the difference between an identity-related compromise and some other kind of compromise, because there are, there are a lot of different types of compromise, as you know, you mentioned the Verizon Data Breach Investigations Report breaks down a whole bunch of those. But you know, on top of that, the hacking and the you know the software vulnerabilities and whatever the other types of breach, hundred percent of companies, at least according to this research, have experienced over the last twelve months an identity-related compromise. Do you have any uh, thoughts on? You know, it, it seems obviously to be on the increase, um, identity-related compromise. Do you have any ideas why that is or, or theories as to what's going on either in the market or enterprises? So certain types of identity theft are absolutely increasing. When the pandemic started, we saw a very rapid increase. The numbers are a little all over the place depending on what source, but anywhere from like 90 to 97% of increase in email velocity. Because all of a sudden, people weren't sitting in an office. They weren't sitting next to their colleagues. They couldn't go down the hall. They couldn't meet somebody in the kitchen. They couldn't have those stand-up meetings. So 
although we have all these new collaboration and communication channels, everybody likes to talk about those. The fact of the matter is email is a mainstay of business communication and email just skyrocketed at the beginning of the pandemic. It hasn't come down really since people are getting more used to the way they work now and it's not quite as awful, but threat actors are always actors of opportunity. And they knew one, more people were working at home. They saw these levels of email increasing and therefore they looked for opportunities to fish and steal credentials. They also knew working at home meant a number of things. It meant somebody might not be working on a managed device. They might be working on a shared device. Their Wi-Fi might not be secure, right? So there, there are layers to that. Their kid might be taking their device at night and downloading some game that has malware or a keylogger <laughs> embedded in it that all of a sudden is now on the device that they're using for work. Um, there's the other challenge that when everybody started working from home, companies needed to solve the issue of connectivity. How do people get access? And in a rush to do that, some security was lessened because the goal, the immediate goal was get people access, get them working as seamlessly as possible. That's why we also saw a huge increase of cloud, right? We've been going to the cloud for years and years and years, but we've never seen such a rapid migration as we did in the first few months of the pandemic. And so all of these things, it was like the perfect storm for attackers. Oh, people are setting up VPN. Guess what? VPN isn't really a security tool these days. It's a it's a connectivity tool. They saw an opportunity to exploit. They saw unmanaged devices and weird baselines that security teams were tracking. They went, huh, we can take advantage of that. So again, attacks of opportunity very much played into this whole thing. And the fact that you can use an insecure connection snoop, get somebody's credentials, or you can you know, somehow listen in uh, on, on an insecure connection and figure out who somebody is and what they're doing, or even basic stuff like password guessing. You know, a lot of people still use the password one, two, three, four, against all better advice. They do it, they do it. And attackers use that and they were able to assume people's identities and get into systems and wreak havoc. It's funny how it, it always goes back, a lot of this goes back, um, disinformation and uncertainty goes back to epistemology and where you get truth from um, and, and clinging to something that's, that's concrete. The, the COVID stuff you bring up is fascinating because I think there's an ongoing discussion and the survey brought this up a little bit in terms of having PII or sensitive data out there, either in the cloud or even in network file shares, email for that matter. Um, and the trade-off between having that information accessible to someone making decisions about access and protecting that data. Um, it, was, it was pretty fascinating. I think you said 83% or something of the compromises had uh, said there was access to identity data. I could be wrong in that number, but... Yeah, so there's, there's some really interesting data, some of which made it into the report and some of which didn't um, because, you know, it, this wasn't a, a huge report by any means. But for instance, permissions and provisioning. 
71% of respondents admitted that compromised identities led to unauthorized access to data that should have been deleted or destroyed. What does that mean? It means that people are holding on to identities of people who don't work there anymore or contractors, or there are a lot of reasons for it. You know, identity management is not easy. It, it's We talk about identity-based compromise and how it's a problem. There's no way to snap one's fingers and be like, okay, I'm just gonna clean up this identity mess. It takes identity governance. It takes a dedicated team. It takes a lot of things, but 71% said that these compromises led to unauthorized access to data that should have been deleted or destroyed. Is that identity information? Sometimes, but it's also consumer information like credit card records for one-time transactions, birth dates, religion, race. I, you know, I can see in some instances where this information is helpful to get an idea of your demographics. But at the same time, this is not always data that people should be holding on to. They companies collect data because it's like currency. The more you can understand about your audience, the better you can target them. Totally get it. It's a little creepy. Totally get it. If you know that I'm a certain type of person and have these certain types of preferences, then you can market to me this way, you can sell to me this other way. But a lot of this information really should be for one-time use. You collect it, you put it in a database, you anonymize it, and then you get rid of that information that's tied to a human being. And that's not happening. So the fact that unauthorized access to data that should have been destroyed was, it, you know, was prevalent here in, in over 70% of cases. It, it should scare a few companies into thinking about their data destruction. That's the end goal, but certainly their access permissions. Like it shouldn't be that easy to get to, you know, anything like race, religion, all these very, very personal things that in very few cases actually affect how a business will operate at that high level. Uh, agreed. You know, a couple of years ago, it was collect all the data you can, big data, big data, big data. And now it's ML and AI. And let's use all that data yeah. trove to go and automate or make more sophisticated decisions. But we're seeing a lot of side effects of having all that data around. I compare it to... Um, uh, orbital space trash, like old rockets, old satellites that are just floating around out there and don't have a purpose anymore, but they're still out there and they're still dangerous. Uh, you think about the Skylab from the U.S. re-entering the, uh, the atmosphere. It's my favorite story because you had people, both extremes, some were up on uh, skyscrapers with binoculars trying to watch it, and other people were hiding in caves because they thought it was going to kill them when it crushed them from the sky, <laughs> which... Sounds a little ridiculous now, but um, a lot of companies don't even know what's out there. And so discovery, what what do we have? No clue. And I think with yeah, national no legislation starting to emerge in the United States, I mean, the states are obviously leading the way with California and Virginia, but we had two different competing national privacy uh, pieces of law. And so it's it's coming. So I think, I think you're totally right. We need to. 
I hope it's coming. I'm a little less optimistic. I think our sort of piecemeal approach to it isn't isn't great. Um, we're seeing more interest. Yeah, yeah, we're seeing more interest, and I think consumers over the years are becoming savvier, and they're saying, "Wait a minute, why do you still have this data?" Because you can again, you can collect the data, you can use the data, process the data. And then you can anonymize the data. You have the data and you can use it and then get rid of the specificity that ties a human being, a specific human being, to that piece of right. data. There are technologies like differential privacy and the you know anonymization that could be used to keep the numbers or keep the totals, just lose the individual connections, which is Absolutely. trickier than you think sometimes because sometimes you can back reference, but... Oh, none of this is easy. It's easy to sit in our little ivory tower and tell people what to do, but we know we know it's actually very hard to execute. That's, that's what I do with my friends and family. I say, there's a problem, there's a problem. You no idea how to fix it. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so this is, this is fascinating. Uh, what would you say um, it struck you as different in these results than you may have seen in the past? Or something you said, oh, that's a new trend or a new thought. Um, I think the one piece to me that was really interesting that hadn't come up in both a couple of years and is sort of this legacy idea is that third parties are always discovering breaches. So we know that security teams should be the one or the ones to find breaches, but in the past, third parties have been overwhelmingly the ones to knock on the door and say, you know, hey, what, this is the FBI, you've got a problem, or hey, this is Brian Krebs, you've got a problem. And so in the past, most of these compromises were discovered by external entities. But according to this survey, um, we see that a lot of these were internally discovered. A lot of these breaches were internally discovered by the teams. It could be the SOC team, could be the security team, could be your traditional IT team. So it's not necessarily the, oh, I'm being told by somebody else, which is a nice change because it means that security teams, internal security teams are getting on top of getting out in front of the problem, being more pre proactive. I think you said that earlier, you know, getting more proactive in their identification of a problem, which obviously if they're the ones finding it and they're the ones finding it with their own tools and their own capabilities, it's being found quicker. I think that's the most important part. If you're not waiting until somebody else discovers it, it's more likely that you're you're shutting things down you know mean time to detect mean time to mitigate it's like if you're in your house and you know you set your walk on fire when you're trying to cook haven't done that never been there never done that um and if you see it you can go oh my god and you can throw a towel on it but if that walk gets out of control you go crazy you run out of your house and your whole house is on fire and then you have to wait for a neighbor to call the fire department same exact thing if you're the one throwing the towel on the walk, you're preventing it from getting 
way, way out of control. Right. And it's it's embedding that security mindset at an earlier point in either the yeah. development or the implementation or or even the purchasing of the products. It's becoming more of a for- front of mind than a back of mind thing, perhaps. So this has been a great discussion. I've I'm always looking for different analogies. And so thank you for bringing the walk into that. I'm going to have to start stealing that. Um, different analogies or points of view, because a lot of times people talk about security or identity and they kind of get into a rut in terms of saying things similar ways. And um, as we know, security is a team sport. Um, and I know uh, from LinkedIn and other sources that you have a music background, uh, if I can dox you on at least that part of it. Um, and I have a theory. I played trumpet myself until late high school. And in band, when I was playing in trumpet, I feel pretty strongly, and I've had this confirmed by other people who are wind instrumentalists, that each instrument has a slightly different personality. Um, and I say this as a trumpet player, which does not necessarily have the most flattering uh, stereotype. <laughs> well, wait a minute. I'm betting that a lot of the security folks on this call don't understand the implications of a of Would a you trumpet. feel free? Would you like to wave forth? Or I mean, well, so from my personal experience, sure. most trumpeters have a little bit of an ego. Oh. They might like to show off a bit, <laughs> maybe a little flamboyant personality. Oh, for, for darn sure. Like, I, th- I think completely. <laughs> um, just like, you know, if someone's playing a saxophone, they're going to be a little bit odd, um, a little quirky. They're not necessarily front of the room, but there'd be a lot of fun. And French horns are just confused. Um, so in that context, ask a challenging question. If security is a team sport, what instrument is identity? And feel free to take this wherever you want. Uh, you know, there are no rules here. So you brought this up the other day when we were prepping <laughs> for this and, and told me to think about it. So I did. I thought about it a lot. And then I nerded out. I completely nerded out. And I started to do some research. And that went way off the rails and I wrote like four pages of notes and I was like, no, 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 this is about identity and identity compromise and identity governance and let's bring it back in. So I think if I were to say, if you were to say to me, you have to figure out which, which member of the orchestra was identity, I think that would be almost impossible. I would say identity governance is your conductor. But I would say identity can be any of the instruments, but you have to think of identity, digital identity, as it relates to the evolution of musical instruments. It's going to take oh, a no, weird this turn, is, but this hear is me what out. I'm here for. <laughs> yeah, hear, hear me out a little bit, because um, I did tons of research, didn't have to do this research, but but... Uh, did lots of research that's not going to help me here today. So if so, I'm a flutist. That's what I grew up doing. I went to college. I went to grad school for it. Have a bunch of useless degrees, and um, oh, totally useless, but love it to death. But so a flute player, um, and I play a modern flute. 
obviously I'm I'm older than some but I'm not ancient but the oldest flute in the world did you know the oldest musical instrument in the world is purported to be this 60,000 year old flute I did not tell me more right okay it's about 60,000 years old it's called a Neanderthal flute it was carved out of the bone the thigh bone of a cave bear Imagine that process and how that worked. So it's bone. It's very small. It's almost square, you know, tiny, tiny. It's more like an ocarina, but it's end blown. So you blow into the end of it and there are four little holes drilled into it. So super primitive. And I've never heard this Neanderthal flute. My guess is nobody has, because if you play it, it will probably crack open but I have certainly heard ocarinas. And there is a sound that is very flute-like. Now, flash forward a few thousand years and get to the Renaissance period. Now you have a new type of flute, a Renaissance flute. It is not end-blown. It is played horizontally, which is the kind of flute most people know today called a transverse flute. And you blow over the top of the tone hole to make the sound, to make it resonate and it was played in Europe from roughly 1500 to 1650 and it was wooden so no more cave bears we're done with cave bears and the Renaissance flute uh, came in three basic sizes uh, that are similar to today's piccolo you know the more traditional C flute and then the bass or alto flute and this wooden flute, it was one piece, it had six holes, and the sound was relatively quiet. It was sort of breathy in its tone, but going from four holes to six holes, going from thigh bone to wood, changed what the flute sounded like and gave it a very big range comparatively. But they sounded different, but if you're really listening, if you played one after the other, you would go, oh, yeah, yeah, they sound different, but they're in the same family, right? These are both flute-like instruments. Okay, now we evolved to the Baroque flute, also a wooden instrument, but now in three parts, head joint, body, and foot joint. Now we go to an instrument that had a key on it, an actual key that was depressed. So that's different. So again, evolving the flute, making it a little different. Baroque flute sounds really different from Renaissance flute if you're listening in and you're comparing them side by side, but you would absolutely recognize both as a flute. Again, modern flute coming forward. Um, it's based on the work of a man named Theobald Baim. I'm definitely pronouncing that incorrectly. Um, in the mid 1800s, again, it's still in three parts, but today's flutes are most typically made out of silver sometimes gold or with gold components, platinum, and there are wooden flutes, but they are very different from your Baroque or Renaissance flute. Now, the modern flute has 16 standard key openings, or 17, there's a, a B foot extension, and the range is tremendously different, and the construction of the instrument is so different from anything in the Baroque or Renaissance period, never mind the Neanderthal period, right? And this helps the instrument be much better at a consistent tone, a consistent pitch, allowing people to control their dynamics, their articulation, all kinds of things. 
But the fact that it's standardized also coincidentally, maybe ironically, allows modern flute players to use extended techniques to create even more out-of-the-box sounds, right? So not just that beautiful flute sound that you might associate with traditional music, but it can get a little strange at times. If you've ever heard some really modern pieces, they use extended techniques, flutter tongue, or um, I played one piece at one point where I literally had to turn in a circle and make noises with my throat so that I was both singing and playing at the same time. You can slap your keys to make a sound. So all these kind of techniques, extended techniques, can be made on the flute so that it sounds really, really different from a flute. But if you're listening to a piece, you're never going to go, oh, that's a trombone. You're always going to identify it as a flute. And so that's how it's related to identity, because at the core, even as, even as it's evolved over centuries, over tens of thousands of years, you can still identify a Renaissance flute as being a flute even if you've only heard a flute of today. And so that's what we mean when we say identity, whether it's a human identity or a machine identity, that's where the identity similarity, I think, comes in. Totally nerdy. No, I that's, get it. That's, but, that's um, lovely. Now, the one thing we will need, we will need some links uh, to distribute. Uh, doesn't have to be you performing this. If it is, bonus. But... Because, <laughs> um, you know, growing up, I played some PDQ Bach, which is the the high school equivalent of, you know, some modern or odd sounding uh, things. But, you know, if well, I'll get back to you on that. And, you know, with the with this podcast, we'll put links in case people want to. Uh, in fact, I'm going to try and find a Neanderthal flute being played. That would be interesting to hear. I don't know if you, you can definitely find Renaissance. You can definitely find Baroque. Now, did they cover this in university? Was this part of your degree program? They did not cover the Neanderthal flute, but but yeah, absolutely studied Renaissance Baroque. That's amazing. All 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 the periods were all the history. Yeah, it's been the best part of my week. Um, okay, so I, I can definitely after this send you some ideas for books if you want to, and recordings that come. I don't even know how they do that anymore. They probably don't have actual books that come with CDs like they did. Yeah, in mine day, too, but, right? Where yeah. it's probably downloaded or something, <laughs> you know, want to learn to play the Baroque flute here. You know. One last question, and this is something we're starting to ask all our guests on mistaken identity. And again, there's no wrong answer here at all. Um, what are you currently reading? It could be fiction, could be nonfiction, could be books to, you know, the next generation or old people, whatever it is, what are you reading right now? And could you talk a little bit about it? I am reading a book called The Paper Wife. Um, it's fiction. I just started it, so I can't tell you too much about it because I'm only a few chapters into it. But it's a really interesting novel. It's based on the idea of China in the 20s, 1920s, and the political situation, the social situation that was happening over there. And you know, they were sort of starting to phase out the idea of, you know, arranged marriages to the extent that they had been. But some of the economic and political and social situations 
required families to sell off their teenage daughters as brides. And in this book, it's very early on, so I'm not, you know, giving away the punchline or anything. Very early on, the oldest daughter was supposed to be arranged to this man, and she gets ill. And so her younger sister has to be given away to this man to become his wife. But the complication here is that the U.S. at the time wasn't allowing Chinese citizens into the country under any circumstance. They were being a lot more strict about who was allowed in, when and why. And so this man's wife had died days before he got remarried. And this new girl, really, teenage girl, has to assume the identity. So, wow, it is identity related. <laughs> I didn't even realize that. But it is identity related. She has to assume the identity of this man's former wife she has to learn everything about this man's former wife. They'd been married for six years and she has to read this book and understand who this woman was so that as they travel and then as they get to the US, I assume because we're not quite to the US in the book yet, she has to be able to emulate this other person to live legally. Of course, it's not legal, right? Because she's she's actually assuming it's an, it's identity theft, but she's assuming this identity to be able to come to the US. I, I imagine there are lots of twists and turns and other things unrelated to identity. But yeah, I didn't I didn't even think about that. But that is the book I'm reading so far. It's really good. It's well written. It's fun. It's something to not think about security after working long days. No, I hear you. That, it yeah. sounds like uh, Jason Bourne-esque. Like, you always think about how, you know, books would be filmed and that kind of thing. I think I think that title is better. That Was it The Paper Thief? Is that what you said it was? The Paper, the paper Wife. wife oh, excuse me. Well, so I got it in my head, I guess, The Theft. But The Paper Wife, that is a, it's a lot better title than, like, Identity Theft. You know, because no one's going to, no one's going to read that <laughs> book. But Woman assumes identity and doesn't get caught. Bum, bum, bum. Like, yes, that's what we do every day in security. Exactly. Yeah, okay. Why wasn't she captured? <laughs> anyway. Well, that sounds wonderful. We'll have to pick that up and we'll provide a link to that someplace as well. Well, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Catherine, for sharing the results of your research on compromise, uh, flutes as the epitome of identity, and the paper wife as an allegory for identity theft. Thank you again for joining us on Mistaken Identity. Sure, anytime. Well, thank you for having me. This has been fun.